lovely to see you all here. It really is um, a pleasure after a pretty wild week. Uh, I don't know about you, Peter, but it's been um, a tough one for many of us and and for many people, particularly in on the East Coast and Northland, Auckland with Cyclone Gabrielle. I got a feeling in a year's time when they check out the baby names. Oh, yeah. Gabrielle will drop off the list I or will be on the Gabby, list. Gabrielle will go right down the yeah. list. Yeah. Not, not a popular. I choice. found this strangely. I mean, I, know, I think we have to be particularly mindful, as you say, of the people on the, on the East, Coast, East Coast and Tairafati and down on the Bay of Plenty um, and Hawke's Bay. Uh, I found it really weirdly similar to the COVID period. There was this sort of dread and anticipation. And, you know, I assembled a grab bag. I had 40 litres of water set out and, you know, bottle of gin laid out there for the, you know, for emergency and for emergency use only. Mm. But um, there was a sort of a lot of anticipation. That's partly because in my case, my neighbour's cliff had fallen into the sea on cyclone hail. Yeah. And so I did, you know, on that particularly bad night, I was waiting for a couple of the boot cars to go over. Unfortunately, they haven't yet. But I did find myself on Monday wearing a harness that a friend of mine had lent me and, you know, 50 metres of rope on the sixth floor of my apartment block with a hacksaw in 40 knot winds, chopping up a piece of um, sort of about 20 metres of um, flashing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That yeah. doesn't sound... No, it was... The, it was no, it wasn't. But I, but I was so grateful to my friend when he said, perhaps you want to go up with a harness from my boat. And <laughs> I did. So, you know, even though if I'd fallen over, I would have been probably hanging and strangled myself oh. three floors down. It wouldn't have gone all the way that's, to the bottom. That's the front page of the New Zealand Herald right there. Well, particularly, I always think of those front pages of the Herald on a Monday morning when it usually says something like, and the life jackets were found in the boat. <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't laugh really, but um, it's been an awful week. Obviously, um, at least five people have died at... Eight, look, eight, eight, I see eight, now, Bernard, and it's one. and it is, and the, and also the the circumstances are really shocking. The mm. speed. There's one one story today about a, I think a 64 year old farmer who you know immediately went from sort of slightly damp toes to under two meters of water. Um, and, and I you know I think we you know and also these two um, volunteer fire, firefighters in Murawai. You know these are these are the kind of salt of earth types who, when the alarm goes off, are there. Yeah, and it just shows you how easily a volunteering like that can turn into something very, very, very serious and difficult. Yes, and um, it's now clear that the damage to not just um, uh, people's lives but also the infrastructure mm. and housing. We know that there are ten thousand people homeless. That at one point we had a quarter of a million households without power. We still have sixty thousand houses without power. Mm-hmm. In- including around one particular substation, the Redcliffe substation near Napier, uh, which was built close to a river and which was identified years ago as one of the 12 Mm. strategic sites in New Zealand that could be a problem uh, in the event of a more than one. And it will be interesting to see how that strategic site thing was then actioned or inactioned. And the core... Not that we're looking for a source of blame, but I think, you know, just how we... How we make these fuck ups from time? Sorry, Bernard. How yes. we make these cock ups from time to time? Yeah, and and actually, how we tra- make the trade offs? You know, because <laughs> when you invest in something, you can do it with all sorts of belts and braces and backups and redundancies, mm. and it costs a lot more. And so you decide, okay, how safe do we want to make it? Do we want to make it one in one hundred years? Or one in four hundred years? years. Yeah. One hundred and four hundred yeah. years. Now, uh, we hear from Transpower today that the new pieces of kit they're building are designed for one and one mm. and 450 years but they've got an awful lot of one and a hundred year mm. uh, pieces of kit which of course now are one in every year or two yeah and uh it was interesting i went to this speech this afternoon by grant robertson in which he said um you know we need to plan for what we thought were one in 450 year events to one in 150 year events. It is an interesting wake up call because it'll be, you know, it'll be very interesting if there's a, a third. You know, my little, I look at my little weather app quite a lot about what what's happening in the Coral Sea and see because this one was, you know, we tracked it. It, it was very easily trackable right from from the moment of its uh, foundation in the Coral mm. Coral Sea, and they just they seem to be coming a little further south. In, in general than they have in the past. And it's clear it's because of the warming sea that there's a, at least a correlation mm. with rising sea, sea temperatures and with um, with climate change. The speech this afternoon from Grant Robertson uh, was really interesting because he basically said, 
that the core thing, the core thing, the core thing uh, for any finance minister forever from now will be climate change, how to deal with it, how to plan for it, how to invest for Mm -hmm. it, and how to um, think about it and be ready for it this time around. Because most politicians have to deal with um, the unexpected, the you know the unknown mm. unknowns. Mm. But this is one of those known knowns mm. that we should be ready for. The black swans and the grey swans. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting when we talk to Michael Baker later today, because I mean, essentially, what he's trying to do with his new health health information um, operation is to try and make us all a bit better informed, think about risk, how we think about risk, and and these things are very similar. Yeah, um, it's going to be great. We're going to have Michael Baker on to talk about catastrophic risks, how we think about it as a political economy. Are we good at making long-term decisions? Turns out we're not, clearly. And what could we do to make better long-term decisions as a as a society? Because we're quite, um, quite uh, good at understanding short-term risk, but we're very bad at Estimating and our cycle risk. makes us think even more short term than, than perhaps we ought to. And and a new cycle, which is not 24 hours long anymore, it's 24 minutes or mm. less than that. So um, what we're going to do, though, first up is hear um, a uh, interview we recorded earlier with Jared Kerr. Here's one we prepared earlier. Here's one we prepared earlier. Well, joining us on the hoon is Jared Kerr, the chief economist for Kiwi Bank. Jared, um, tell us about what you think the Reserve Bank might or perhaps should do next week in the wake of the devastation of cyclone gabrielle yeah exactly exactly that we're, we're in the middle of a national emergency uh, i don't think now is the time to raise rates um, i don't know how you you sort of justify or or um, explain hiking by 50 basis points or 75 basis points uh, in the middle of a national crisis um, you can easily postpone this decision uh, come back in April uh, after we've had a chance to assess the damage, uh, and the damage damage is extensive. Um, you know we're all scrambling at the same time trying to figure out just how bad this is. Uh, we know it's worse than the Kaikoura uh, earthquakes, not as bad as as the Canterbury earthquakes. Somewhere in between, uh, we're thinking it's a a damage bill of of around. 10 billion dollars possibly more you know we're being conservative so with such a, a, a huge economic shock i think that the reserve bank just needs to to sit back um and and assess but and Jared, is... isn't it also isn't it also the case Jared, sorry isn't Are it you... also the case Jared, that um there will be a quite a domestic impact on inflation on on, on, on domestically derived inflation from this you know, we're talking about the Coomera crop in Dargaville. We're talking about a lot of agriculture very badly damaged in Hawke's Bay. Um, you know, they're going to be feeling inflationary pressures come through and then also feel compelled to act ahead of time, aren't they? Inflation is definitely going to increase on the back of this. And the job of the Reserve Bank is to go through that inflation um, data with, with fine detail and separate out uh, what's what's been caused by... Um, the flooding and the and the cyclone. It's their job to look through an economic shock like mm-hmm. this. We're going to get a big spike in activity, which is going to look good. But all we're doing is rebuilding to to hopefully where we were, and, and that's going to take years. Um, you look through an economic shock like this, um, and uh, and and you sort of pick up the pieces later on. Before the shock, um, the the latest inflation data that we we've been getting out of New Zealand and, and, and around the world has been a significant improvement. Um, we, we think inflation is peaking now. Um, we have some very big price rises that we saw, you know, this time last year dropping out. So annual rates of inflation are going to mm-hmm. fall uh, quite, quite materially this year, just based on what commodity prices have done. Um, so we're already sort of slowly winning that, that battle uh, globally. So the outlook has, has definitely improved. Um, and I, I think, you know, the idea that, that this is a shock and it's going to cause some inflation, let's tighten on the back of it. That's no, you look, you look through it. What did Australia do in the similar, similar circumstances, Jared, for either the, either the bushfires or its, its floods? Did, did, the, did the RBNZ, the, the um, Reserve Bank of Australia behave in a similar way? Yeah, good question. I, I can't remember, actually. Uh, it's going back a while. Um, 
There, there is some precedent um, yeah. in New Zealand uh, in the March 2011 decision from the Reserve Bank. So that's um, a couple of weeks after the February 23rd um, earthquake in Christchurch, in which the Reserve Bank cut the official cash rate from 3.0 to 2.5%. And that yeah. was um, after a period in the previous six months when they'd been trying to increase it. So... Uh, if you believed that this was a shock to the economy that was as big as Christchurch, and mm-hmm. at the moment, um, I've just come back from a, a speech where the finance minister wouldn't necessarily um, talk total figures, but he's talking about billions. And uh, although he he did say it was unlikely to be the sort of 35, 40 billion that we saw in Christchurch, but um, definitely it's something that the Reserve Bank took into account in March of 2011. And um, I think you're right, uh, Jared, in that there is some time, unlike um, maybe, you know, if this had happened at the beginning of December, where you've got a two month gap, this time around, there's only another six weeks, really. And um, uh, that gives them a bit of time. And also, you do have to wonder when you make a decision like this you know that it's going to have an impact 18 months, two years out. And uh, that's the actual main impact of the monetary policy change. Whereas the psychological impact of, let's say they go 75 next Wednesday, would be really quite damaging for an awful lot of small businesses who, you know, the last thing they need is a a letter in the mail. (laughs) They don't even have their power back on saying that their mortgage rate just went back up. Yeah, it's simply the wrong wrong time. I think you're right. and there, there is another uh, period where it was August 2021 and we went back into lockdown and the central bank was supposed to start its uh, rate rises in, in that month and they postponed it and came back in October, which is not a monetary policy statement. This was an inter-meeting inter sort of move, if you, if you remember. So the, the optics, the, uh, the communication of a rate hike in the middle of a lockdown was unpalatable for them. So they, mm. they decided to, to postpone and come back in, in October. I think a, a rate rise next week is unpalatable with, it, you know, in, with what's going on. So come back, in, come back in April um, and, when, and- when we've got a handle on everything. Particularly when a rate rise next week wouldn't actually do much to reduce that inflation that's going to come through in the next few months, um, which is it's going to come through in food prices and some construction and and some labour. But um, you know, right now, what's, what's the argument for for actually doing it? Because I just you know we, we're sort of Jared's come out you know in, in early in saying that they shouldn't do it. What's the what would be the argument for actually doing it for not d- doing exactly what Jared's talking about and and um, rethinking it. So, I'll, so I'm uh, happy. Oh, you go. I'm, I'm happy to to um, be the devil's advocate here <laughs> uh, and and say that um, you know inflation is still above where the Reserve Bank wants to to get it, and their forecast back in November was that they were going to still have to increase the official cash rate from 4.25 where it is right now up until um five and a half percent by next year so yeah. even if they bring back that you know peak level of their um official cash rate to maybe five 5.25 they're still a little bit away from where they want to be and um i think there are uh, it was interesting to see sharon zolner say today that there is you know other things maybe the reserve bank could do to um, you know, take some pressure off if they chose to go with a fifty or twenty-five, even they could do some other things behind the scenes with uh, their uh, bond program um, to uh, uh, take some of the pressure off. So they, they do. I mean, they're, they're one main tool, but they do have a few other things uh, going on. And um, you know, I suppose you could say stability is uh, one way to reassure people and just do what you're going to do anyway. Um, but I just, I just think um, uh, the shock of what's just happened in uh, particularly the Hawke's Bay, um, Gisborne, Northland, those places uh, where there's a lot of, you know, exporters there and a lot of small businesses um, 
it's it's quite a thing. Uh, and and also, um, Jared, tell us about what's what's happening overseas on the inflation front, which maybe is different from when the Reserve Bank last told us their forecasts for inflation in the economy, um, because you know lots moved on since November twenty third. Yeah, lots changed. Um, just to go on on what uh, Sharon said, I you know mm. I agree with that. Um, you know, you're in the middle of a crisis. The government may have to issue more debt. The, the Reserve Bank can sell less or stop selling uh, the bonds to actually make it easier for the DMO. But if you're doing that, then why are you hiking with the other hand? It's like you're giving with one, taking with the other. It's a just you know do what you need to do to get the government through this and the economy through this and then come back in, in April. So sorry to make the same point again, but then looking overseas, um, you know, you're absolutely right. Inflation pressure has come off and come off quite substantially in the last few months. Um, the US is a, you know, a, a classic example where you have inflation of over 9% and now it's closer to 6% and it's forecast to, to keep falling. Um, we've even seen sort of a turning point, in the UK, they still have inflation of 10%, but it's turning. Uh, and in Europe and in other parts of the world, inflation is turning. Uh, oil prices are not as high as what they were a year ago. That's all starting to feed through. Supply chains uh, have improved. China's reop- reopened, which is helping that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, quite simply, looking around the world at the inflation pressures, it's not what it was uh, a year ago. So half of the inflation that we have generated, half of that 7% that we've got right now came from offshore. That is now dwindling. Um, so half of our inflation basket is is improving and will continue to improve into next year. The other half's the difficult bit, and that's the bit that will also be fueled uh, somewhat by the the, um, the rebuild from the, from the cyclone. Uh, and that's the bit we really need to look into uh, and and look through some of what's what's going to happen. Because Jared, um, there's also a bunch of you know consumers who the Reserve Bank in theory is trying to influence by putting up interest rates, who are going to be making purchase decisions not because you know they they're feeling good about buying the carpet and the the new the new couch and uh, replacing the flat screen TV because they need it because they don't have a carpet or a couch or a flat screen TV. And, you know, the Reserve Bank sending signals with higher interest rates or whatever is sort of, you know, irrelevant And when you're, when you're in the middle of... Uh, it's not about whether I want a nicer TV or or choose to replace the couch uh, maybe a year earlier mm-hmm. than, I, than I would. It's that sitting on the floor. Yeah. And, and it's not like they haven't done anything. They've lifted rates 400 basis points. Um the, the full effect of the rate rises that we've seen so far are still coming through. Um, yes, they're on a preset course to five and a half percent. That'll be adjusted. I think that'll that'll fall to five percent uh, eventually, possibly possibly lower. They are on this course of of higher interest rates, but central banks globally are slowing down their their rate rises, and they look like they're going to finish their hikes uh, in the next three to four months. And and I think central banks globally will be pausing. Uh, for the best part of of this year. So we're at that point where we're tweaking policy. We're not trying to catch up and trying to get it, um, you know, uh, on top of something. They're actually on top of it and they're tweaking at the moment. So, you know, it's it's not like we're at the start of the tightening cycle. Monetary policy is well above uh, neutral. It's well into restrictive territory, which means it's already restraining the economy. Jared, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show, and um, uh, I hope that you, 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 and um, all of your um, garages and and gardens uh, don't, aren't too aren't too wet and uh, wash washed away when you get to have a look at them. Thank thanks you very, very much, much for being for being on the thing, Jared. Hey, thanks for thanks for having me on. I'll be in Wellington on Wednesday for the monetary policy statement. Uh, press conference. And remember, we haven't heard from the Reserve Bank properly mm. since November the 23rd, and a lot's gone down in that period. So um, that will be interesting. We also heard from Grant Robertson today saying that essentially the government would step up and use its balance sheet, i.e. borrow mm. more money, to uh, do the repairs, to give the support to Hawke's Bay, Gisborne, Northland. And uh, he talked about billions of dollars. Mm. And we know from Jared, he thinks it's about a ten billion dollar cost, not as much as it's very the, hard to guess at at this point. Yeah, I mean, but because the, the, the loss in produce alone mm. is going to be pretty tremendous if you see that esque valley oh, uh, damage and so on. Awful. So, um, let alone let alone the um, Kumara. 
Yes. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, that that is that is a fruit bowl of a place, and basically it was been flooded for a week. Mm. And the Esk Valley, um, and it's some awful stories coming out of there. And it was interesting to hear uh, Grant Robertson. I got a chance to ask him some questions after the speech, in which uh, he he made he made what appeared to be a longer term shift, where he said you know what, um, the old rules we have to rethink mm-hmm. with climate change. Uh, if we're going to have these sorts of events regularly, we had a, a $1 billion event three weeks ago, and now it looks like we've got a $10 billion mm-hmm. plus event now, then if you're a government, you have to think differently about how you fund this infrastructure, whether or not you rebuild. Because you remember, we have got all these bridges down in all sorts of places, and you've got roads that have been washed away. For example, State Highway 25A, is that the one that goes across yep. to Coromandel? Mm-hmm. That it's has, completely destroyed. It's 100 metres gone. Yep. And it's a classic Manawatu Gorge replacement story. Do you rebuild on that route or do you take a whole mm. new route completely? Mm. Now, obviously, if you do a whole new route completely, that may be more expensive. Uh, or, um, and here's the maybe the shocking idea, maybe you don't rebuild at all. Mm. Maybe you just decide... It's going to be longer to get to your holiday batch of choice. And that's it. Because remember, every time you rebuild a road, lay more concrete, um, you're pumping more carbon emissions into the Mm. air. And one of the pieces of news, which hardly anyone has seen this week, and fair enough, it's been a very busy week, was in Wales on Wednesday night, the Welsh local government announced that they were going to stop building of new roads. Good Lord. Essentially, they argue that um, whenever you build a new road, it feels good for a year or two until everyone says, oh, this new road's great. I'm going to get a third car to to drive to school on it. And you have this thing called induced demand. And it's classic. It really works all around the world. Um, As soon as you build the motorway, you put on a couple of extra lanes. Magically, more cars arrive to fill it up. And you, you very quickly are back in a situation where... You haven't actually made much progress, and it's fascinating to see an that entire. Risks, does, that does risk, though, also being the no growth argument. Yes, well, um, and that is a classic. We're going to have this argument day after day um, forever. Now, should we be repairing our infrastructure in exactly the same way it was before, or do we make some essentially choices about surrendering? some of mm. our lifestyle, mm. uh, in part to avoid pumping more emissions into the atmosphere and admitting that uh, maybe we won't be driving around and flying around so much in the future. Speaking uh, of which. Yes, we are Michael, very, very lucky to, lucky to have with us Michael Baker, who um, is no doubt familiar to many of our uh, uh, listeners and watchers as... And if they're not, they've, they've had their head in the back for the last two years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but we're actually here to talk about something slightly different to what you'd normally um, hear from Michael, and that is around the risk of catastrophes and how our political economy um, deals with these risks. Uh, Michael is part of a group of scientists who have built a public health communications uh, unit or team to help try to educate and uh, get this information out into the public. Welcome on to The Hoon, Michael. Great to see you. Yeah, kia ora, Bernard and Peter. Great to be with you. Now, tell us about, firstly, the public health communications uh, team that's being built there. It's relatively new. You're involved in it. Um, what was the thoughts behind it? Well, I think it's it's the idea that we are um, awash with fantastic evidence, but we're not very good at translating that into policy. And also the public must be getting very confused about what evidence to believe. So Mm. we are just building on what I think is quite an established tradition of academics communicating to the public. And I know you engage with academics and have a big interest in uh, what the evidence is saying. And so it's to have, I guess, uh, ideally a more evidence-informed society. And one of the other points of difference, I mean, we are similar to the Science Media Centre, which I think has the same mission in a sense or same goal but we are going to be focusing on public health outcomes and that is going to be um, health equity and also a healthy environment that's more sustainable and in many ways that framing is very familiar to New Zealanders and we hope it resonates with core values that most of us share. 
you put out um, a paper this week, a briefing note, uh, which talks about catastrophic risks. And it's obviously very timely. Um, if you'd put it out two weeks ago, it would be just as timely, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And uh, you said some really interesting things about how we as a society deal with the long-term risks or the long-term problems and why it is we you know we, we're just not very good at making these long-term decisions yes. particularly democracies could you talk us through some of the examples of where maybe we we we, we haven't got it right yeah well i think the examples unfortunately all around us and particularly when you've been around for a few decades and you see history repeating itself. And unfortunately, the cost of getting it wrong, of short-term thinking, is getting higher. And uh, we're, you know, the obvious examples recently that's quite worrying, I think, for many of us is seeing, obviously, a severe pandemic that I think the world didn't see coming. The obvious um, consequences of not having uh, good building codes for for dealing with earthquakes, and of course, um, uh, climate change, a warming world, and uh, more catastrophic flooding, and all the things that go with it. So I think we are surrounded by examples where we need to take a long term perspective. And broadly, there are two strategies that apply right across the board. One is prevention. Obviously, you can't prevent earthquakes, unfortunately, but you can prevent. Uh, climate change, and we can prevent pandemics by stopping them at source. The second thing is, of course, whether you call it adaptation or managing the consequences better or creating a more resilient society, that's a thing we can always do. So those two strategies, there's abundant evidence. We just have to get much better at translating it. But of course, that does mean investing more in the present for threats in the future. And individuals, our psychology as individuals is not very good at doing that. And that's why we need to institutionalize that thinking. That's why we need governments and increasingly more sophisticated mechanisms for anticipating what can go wrong. So moving away from reactive to proactive or anticipatory decision making. That um, distinction between reactive decision making and anticipatory decision making is fascinating. One of my favorite books is Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman, who is a behavioral uh, economist uh, who won a Nobel Prize for insights into how humans make economic decisions that aren't on the face of it rational. (laughs) Can you talk a bit more about the, uh, the, I suppose they call it cognitive biases or how it is that um, we always seem to, you know, get very worried about the here and now and tend to ignore the future, both the good and the bad. Yeah, well, it's part of the human condition, isn't it? That we, we're, we're overly optimistic and um, we obviously put a high value on short-term gratification. And that's why we are in some ways such an, a successful species at um, taking over the planet, exploiting resources and so on. So uh, we have to fight against, we have to find ways of fighting against those um, natural biases we have. And that means um, you know, institutionalizing a more long-term perspective on managing these threats. And you could look at an example. One is that um, you know the median age of people in New Zealand is 37. So on average, they're going to live for another 50 years. But when you go and you look at, um, say, the, the the competing policies of of, of, um, of political parties and some of the other choices available, are you going to take the choices or support decision making that's going to make the next 50 years pretty appealing? Or are you going to go for things that will give you a very short-term fix? If you take another, you can even extend that further, uh, thinking more of the health of um, children. And on average now, they're going to live, maybe some of them will be living for 100 years. Mm. So that changes the perspective even more, investing in children. You can go back even further and invest in future generations. And some political um, or moral philosophers have added up the million, the billions of people who are yet to come and how our decisions will radically change their quality of life. I mean, that's a big a step maybe too far for many of us. But all of this is saying the, the same thing. We have to find ways of institutionalizing long-term thinking. Your uh, paper um, had some ideas, uh, which um, 
are interesting and sort of new and not what I'd call, you know, revolutionary. <laughs> it's not like it's not like you're saying, ah, let me be the dictator and I can solve all of this. <laughs> so what, what sort of ideas have you got? Well, one of the simple areas that's talked about a lot by, um, I think, political scientists is having a longer political term. So moving from three to five years. And that is simply to give our, our decision makers more time to address really complex issues rather than being in election mode from very early on. And mm. so I think that's a very logical shift. The other is moving more towards having commissions to help with complex problems, saying that actually our political leaders don't have all the answers. And we've seen that with the Law Commission and, and having other commissioners. There's um, the idea of having um, a commissioner for uh, catastrophic risk. And they'd be looking at those really big, worrying things on the horizon. There's also another idea, citizens' juries, and this goes really back to the idea of Athens, where you um, decided meetings, you decided policies by uh, in the town square uh, by collect- taking a, a random selection of the citizens who would make the, the, decision, mm. make the decisions. And so that's an idea that's been used quite a bit overseas for quite complex, longer-term problems. So, Michael, while we've gone back to ancient Greece, let's talk for a minute about the media then, because you have, uh, particularly social media, you have being the subject uh, or the object of you know, really extraordinary attacks on social media um, for your remarkable, consistent, always polite uh, and giving the best information you could possibly could every day during the pandemic. I hope, by the way, that you were paid per minute on on media. Yeah. <laughs> it could be so rich. Not, not on not on the car. Court. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> but, you know, how do we how do we deal with that welling up of uh, anger? frustration, disinformation and misinformation that was spread around the pandemic, because a lot of that is now, you know, like if you look at the UK, for example, where you've had Brexit, the Brexit people are now talking about going after um, after zero, the zero target. You know, it's these things all come through. And how, how do you avoid being seen as just another tool of some World Economic Forum conspiracy to make us all, um, you know, part of the Helen Clark Global Socialist Government? Yes. Uh, well, thanks for raising that. And I think... Um... Uh, our politicians, our leaders and commentators, unfortunately, are now in this world where there's this intense disinformation. And mm. it is quite remarkable. I actually largely avoid social media because it is so toxic. Uh, yeah. But um, I, I do. Um, my uh, friends and family do monitor it. And there's also a disinformation project across universities mm. that monitors it. And they also, if things are particularly uh, dangerous. They will report to the police regularly about mm. what they're seeing. Uh, but yeah, it is like uh, almost like a parallel universe where the normal laws of um, logic, evidence, and um, you know, reasonably civil behaviour don't apply. And it's it's quite foreign. And it's also interesting that you very rarely encounter that in your uh, interpersonal daily life. Yeah, yeah daily life. Yeah. So. Uh, I um, and I have been to forums that are talking about how to manage this information, and there's clearly no quick fixes, uh, or the fixes would be unacceptable to many people. They involve a much tighter regulation of mm, mm, censorship speech. of internet comment. Yeah. Uh, so, you. I but how are you going to? How with this new organisation with this approach? I mean, I, I was I was very struck with some of the things you said when when launching it, and it, and it is an interesting idea. Um, you know, you focused on I think well, one of the imbalances that you focus on or needs to address was the um difference in difference in um life expectancy to be expectancy between Maori and Pakeha and, and uh then on to Pacifica people as well you know these are all p- quite politically volatile areas and you're going to yeah. get an, you know th- how you manage the information coming out of this unit is also going to be quite important because otherwise you're in my old boss Jimmy Wales from Wiki, Wiki, Wikipedia's view which is the only way to counter bad information is to have more good information. And we, I think we know that that doesn't actually work. Yeah, well, I think um, it's a really good question. And our default option is to keep putting out um, high quality information and repeating it uh, and providing evidence and also relating it to values that people, I think, also accept. And you see a lot of those core values um, are evident in the uh, current response to the climate. Mm-hmm emergency in New Zealand. And uh, I think most New Zealanders actually still adhere to those views. Um, But we obviously need to have more systematic strategies for dealing with the most toxic disinformation. Uh, 
And how do you what what do you want to do with them? I mean, how do you want to address the media in this, Michael? Maybe we could talk about this offline at some point because yeah. I'm I'm very interested in this. Given the, you know, one of the things that happened with with COVID was the intersection between the COVID story and the um, public interest journalism fund being created was essentially to try and support good journalism that might have been at risk during COVID, but was then used as a stick with, with which to beat the media and saying, you know, it's all part of the government buying off the media and we're all, being, we're all giving the same message. I mean, you've got to be very quick, careful, I would say, Michael, not to be, you know, to, to retain your independence of view in some in some perspective, but also how do you deal with the media in this, you know, because that, that is one of your critical channels. Yeah, well, I think um, when I talk to journalists, um, they are often confronted with the same challenges as um, any academics that want to communicate independent information, and they come under the same attacks. And actually, you know, we've been talking quite a bit about values that um, that scientists who um, are commentators and journalists share, particularly the really good investigative journalists, mm. and they actually overlap very much. And... Uh, one of the things, and I was astounded when I started as an academic um, a bit over 20 years ago, to see that being the critic and conscience of society was in your job description. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that's amazing, because I never, I didn't imagine that, that actually the law was so progressive and saying this is just our job. Mm. And I think we can say no one is paying us to say any of this. In fact, it takes extra time and effort. Absolutely. So, um, but yeah, it doesn't stop the truly bizarre um, uh, disinformation coming back at you um, that yep. is just, you know, I would say laughable about um, the influence of some, your connection to Gates and um, mm. a whole lot of conspiracies that would take a huge amount of effort to ever sustain and how people can believe this, I find remarkable. Yeah, no, um, you, you did really well to not um, dive into that uh, cesspool because you never come out clean uh, at all. It's And apart from anything else, you probably can't sleep at night after that. Uh, j- just just finally, uh, Michael, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the sausage-making process of policy. I'm a, my, my thing is the political economy. I sort of get the policy and I get the economic drivers and I get what's in our interests and I get at some of the long-term things, but I'm constantly stunned at actually how the obviously correct thing to do, the sensible thing to do after you've weighed up the pros and the cons, at least with the information you have at that time, just doesn't get done. And in particular, uh, this idea that you would have someone who is uh, an advisor to governments, councils, who essentially is the the person saying, you should do that thing, but not that thing, because that thing is better for everyone in the long run than that thing. And I'm thinking in particular of how Treasury makes decisions, particularly about social spending or infrastructure spending, the sorts of things they use around Discount rates, I mean, this sounds boring, but actually, if you have a very high discount rate, you're essentially devaluing to almost nothing the um, the effects or the benefits of some sort of uh, longer-term investment. And in particular, Treasury, uh, which has talked a good game about living standards and well-being and all of that sort of stuff, we had a really good example just a few weeks ago when a piece of research that comes out, and this is where I'm really interested about how useful research from uh, organizations like uh, the Longitudinal Study, the Dunedin Study, and of course there's a new one, uh, well not that new, (laughs) in Auckland that's working as well, uh, in which uh, obvious insights don't seem to filter through to the the money men and women um, telling the government, yes, you can do this and no, you can't do that. And in particular, this idea that you could take an actuarial approach to these sorts of decisions in which you effectively apply um, the tools of an actuary to uh, overcome our cognitive biases, which magnify the effects of uh, benefits now, but even more magnify the effects of losses now, so that uh, in effect, um, uh, this would be a great constitutional or um structural way for the bureaucracy, the policy-making machine, to effectively 
we overcome our cognitive biases with good evidence and a jolly good spreadsheet. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was struck actually on that, Bernard, and also to, to sort of to your point, um, uh, Michael, about the commissions and and getting a bit of um, cross-party support for some of this. Um, Christopher Luxon this week has been very straight up and down about the consequences of, of climate change and the potential attribution of of some of this you know some other level of these incidents of the last couple of weeks to climate change which seemed to me to be a very positive um non-denial way to way to approach it yeah i mean i gave me some heart that there may be some common ground there yeah i um saw those comments in which he said we should be investing in infrastructure of the climate and then the very next question was is that more important than tax cuts well, no, tax cuts are fair things to do. Well, it's un- it would be unfair of us to ask you about that. But, but do, do you see the signals politically, Michael, for, because I mean, you, you, you have to navigate both with the government and with various opposition parties, I'm sure, from time to time. You know, do you, how do you navigate that space? And do you see any positivity around having a, having a conversation that goes across? Yeah, look, I think um, there is a very good opportunity now. And the area I know best, um, although I think climate change is very vivid, I think tax justice is a huge area that needs to be looked at. I think leadership for Māori health is critical, uh, and uh, we need to maintain that. But the area is that I looked at a great deal was, of course, pandemics, and saying um, New Zealand's response was very good, but it was still a reactive one. The virus was still here. We mm. did respond very quickly. We switched to elimination, which I think has produced outstanding results by world standards. We're still negative excess mortality territory, really the only country on earth that can say that. Mm. But it was still a reactive mode, and I think the whole world needs to move to a more proactive response. And there's the reform of the international health regulations, and they should really be saying we stop the pandemics at source rather than waiting to see what happens, which is what the whole Western world did last time. And it was tragic. If the the Chinese showed that you could stop the pandemic in Wuhan, I mean, it was very a very tough response, but it, it was a proof of concept you could stop a respiratory pandemic in full flight, which had never been done before. Imagine if that had been done four weeks earlier when it could have been, mm. and you just stopped it at source. And um, there's that um, um, saying in public health, a public health triumph, nothing happened. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that, that was that was the story with with bird flu and swine flu, of course. That yeah, you know, we yeah. we bought all the tamiflu. Well, I was in England at that time, and they bought all the tamiflu and everything, and they didn't need them. And that meant that the whole thing had worked. You know, the epidemiologists hadn't been wrong. It wasn't that the experts were wrong. It's that it worked. I mean, let, let me ask you a question. That the the H five N one seems to be having a resurgence that is would appear to have crossed over to mammals with mink in Spain and um, sea lions off um, South America to some extent. How worried should we be about that being the next um, pandemic without scaring everybody to death? Well, I think um, uh, this bird flu avian influenza has been sitting there on the um, radar for over 20 years Mm. as it spread systematically through a vast array of birds and mammals across the planet. And so far, it and when it infects humans, it has a very high mortality rate, but it's not good at transmitting between people. Now, I think there are a lot of scientists, there'd be thousands of scientists looking at the behavior of that virus very closely to see if it is changing. It hasn't done that yet. So I think we, you know, I guess we don't want to watch and wait, but no. if it's a sign that it is starting to show signs of transmission easily between mammals, I think we'd get very worried. I'm curious, too, about this idea of wasting a good crisis, which is a sort of a, a way of, uh, of admitting that democracies aren't very good at uh, taking quite dramatic action uh, to save themselves when things are calm. What they need is an immediate and credible threat, a, um, a, you know, something that is, is a threat of potential death, in which we essentially have a crisis and we say, okay, uh, let's just do whatever it takes to fix it. And I'm thinking here in particular of the enormous 
eventual improvements in the um, the lives of people in the nineteenth uh, in the twentieth century. Eventually, after the first and second world wars, when democracies realised they needed to invest in public infrastructure, improve the working lives of most people, to avoid. Uh, communism and uh and of course uh the cold war meant that you saw immense investment in technology and in very long-term things because your um generals and planners were saying what we really need is to spend 10 20 years building out an uh um an intercontinental highway to link up all the states so that we can rush tanks to to wherever the Soviets land. And what you ended up with was the um, enormous growth in the economy and uh, people are better off because uh, a crisis, in effect, was um, jumped on uh, in a democracy to actually do some of these there, long... Sorry? Is there a question for Michael on uh, No, no, I'm just talking aloud and it's quite fun. Uh, no, <laughs> sorry, Mike. I mean, from those point of view, from the point of view of those experts saying we need to think longer term is there a tactical aspect here where you say it's quite difficult to get the long-term thinking done in quiet times how about you use the crisis to do some stuff as well although you you run the risk of being seen as a bit cynical yeah well look that's the way we've made policy in the past and some of it has been good policy and after the 1918 flu pandemic that killed almost 1% of New Zealanders in six weeks, that would be like 50,000 people dying in, in six weeks now. It would be horrific. And after that, we got a greatly expanded Health Act and better infrastructure. In um, 2015, sorry, 2005, the world got the international health regulations. That was in response to two things, the rise of bird flu and SARS in Asia, which had been frightening for everyone and it had a 10% mortality rate so it was um, quite shocking but it wasn't as transmissible as COVID-19 so after that the whole world 193 countries signed on to the international health regulations giving us some of the best international law we'd ever had so yes crisis um, does motivate action and it can even line up all the countries in the world just occasionally so yes I agree with you and we we shouldn't waste the crisis of COVID-19 and a lot of people, a lot of very smart people around the globe are looking hard at what this means. Whether it translates into much better law remains to be seen. Uh, uh, thank you very much, um, Michael, for coming on and talking for a bit longer than I um, said, said that we would. But it was just so fascinating for me that these questions about political economy and how you can, um, in a way, trick is way to mean a word, but um, suggest, nudge, uh, uh, get people to do the right thing which may not be in their immediate um lizard brain thinking is um is a fascinating topic so i i wish you good luck and and thank you very much thank you uh, michael. michael always good to see you yeah thanks bernard and peter great to talk cheers uh, there we have um dr michael baker we have well, a few thinking, i was thinking you know there's definitely no pandemic on if he can bother to come on the car canal because he's not on the six o'clock he's obviously not preparing to go on right at six o'clock news we're light relief yeah we're a light By relief certainly yeah are. let's talk about the other catastrophic risks just imagine being the parliamentary commissioner for catastrophic risks mm. that that would be quite a fun job actually you yeah get, you get up yeah. you get your job is to get up in the morning and not and, fuck it up and preach That's doom and gloom yeah, but also and not get paid it for it. Yeah, yeah. Now that would be to be like the guy on the corner of the street who's saying, "The time of the reckoning is here." Mm. Um, uh, but so Bernard, I told everybody that we would, we would, um, we might do some international affairs now. Ah, Should we do that? Yes, absolutely. It, or let's, you want to do another? No, no, let's revert to type. Daniel Kahneman. No, no, this is good. Yeah. Go if you like. So, because I think there's some very interesting ideas um, as to whether the spring offensive has, in fact, already started with the Russians in Ukraine, and it certainly appears to have started with the um, Ukrainians. I, I put out a. Um, link to my spin-off thing and in there is a public link the ft's not put it behind paywall which is really great which is a sort of set of dynamic maps of the front lines and it'll give you a very good indication and worth looking at over the next few weeks you'll be able to identify to some extent where these places are and why they why they might be strategic but what was also interesting to see 
the Washington Post yesterday reporting from unnamed but kind of interesting sources potentially um, that the US is giving Ukraine a bit of a hurry up and saying, look, you're not going to have this access to these weapons forever. You know, we've got to get got to get moving on this diplomatically. And I think that pressure again will combine with the military pressure, even despite what we see from Zelensky and despite the evident support. Yeah, another classic case where, you know, it's a democracy against an autocracy. And uh, sometimes the autocracies can afford to ignore public opinion. Oh, really? Just, I hadn't just, noticed that. Just yeah. go for it. Mm. And um, and this is the other thing about the Russians. Uh, you know, obviously we we make fun of them and, you know, they're... Well, I don't. Yeah, and, I, I wouldn't make fun of them, but yeah, no, uh, no. Yeah. But but uh, we see them as not very sophisticated or somehow um, uh, a bit blunt. But when you, and I'm I'm one of these uh, uh, tragic followers of um, military history and geopolitics, particularly around the Second World War, mm. and the way that Russia was able to absorb the blows. Um, rebuild like heck although to be fair they had an awful lot of help from from the allies yes a tremendous well. amount. we forget about lend lease yeah. you know, we forget about henry ford's model a factory in in um uh in in russia pumping and the soviet union pumping pumping model a's out to be used you know we there was a tremendous amount of help but yeah they did lose you know 27 million people as well yeah and uh that will be fascinating to see how long the west keeps its attention on Ukraine and cares. Well, that has been, of course, Putin's calculation from day one. I think he's been surprised about, well, you know, he, he must have been somewhat surprised at the robustness of the response uh, and, and to have wished that Trump was still there, for example. But um, I don't, you know, I still don't think it's going to last forever, the, that, that robustness of that response. And that's also why Zelensky has to keep the pressure up, but also be such an effective kind of diplomat and representative for his own country. That olive shirt has done so yeah. much work. Yes. Um, we're going to leave it there, I think. Uh, that's a that's a slightly shorter than usual. Uh, but, but we do have a skateboarding dog. Oh, we have a skateboarding dog about the Brazilian the Brazilian lawyer who went into his went, went who who was fortunately a pro a pro um a pro um gun rights pro gun rights uh, Brazilian lawyer went into his um to the room where his mother was having an MRI scan with a concealed pistol tucked into his belt. And the MRI machine made the gun with the magnetism of the MRI machine made the gun go off, which shot him, shot him in the abdomen, and he died later. So, you know, I just thought there was a, there, you know, there's the usual the, the the Darwin the Darwin prize to that show. Yes, you'd think you'd know when you went into the um, the machine. Um, no, he wasn't. He it was his mother in the machine. He was uh, just in the room. I mean, I think even even I wouldn't wear a, a gun into an MRI machine. Yeah. Shouldn't laugh. I mean, to be fair, it's great that his mother wasn't shot. That's, that's right. That's, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Hey, um, thank you very much, Peter. That thank was, you. Very uh, much. It's been a long week, folks. <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, have a great weekend. Kakite Ano. Uh, this has been the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. With... I'm, I'm Peter Bale. See you later. Catch you. Bye bye.